Welcome to this week's Muslim Rum Springa, the most halal haram podcast. I'm Basim. I'm Nashwa, and today uh, we're very excited to be joined by Vivek Chibber, a professor of sociology at New York University. He has been widely published on development social theory and politics and the author of two books some of you may be familiar with. Um, from my tweets, I saw that some were familiar with um, and actually Vivek came up as a guest on the fall lineup because of a tweet I, I posted about looking for people whose work is compelling and kind of relates to mine. Um, so one of the books is Postcolonial Theory and the Spectre of Capital by Verso. The other one is Locked in Place, State Building and Late Industrialization in India. And in 2017, uh, Vivek, with some others, launched Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy published, published by Jacobin Magazine. And we are super excited to chat with him today. And I'll let him introduce himself a bit to the Muslim Rum Springa audience before we get into some questions. Um, nothing much to say. I teach sociology at New York University. Um, I was born in Delhi, in India, and I spent my adolescence there coming to the U.S. In, when I was in high school. And um, I've been here since. Uh, Catalyst, as you say, is a journal, a uh, socialist journal. It's associated with Jacobin Magazine. And uh, it's doing very well. And um, it's a good moment for the left in the U.S. because for the first time in around 50 years, there's something approximating political debate and political discourse. Um, and uh, it's mostly being carried out by the younger generation, uh, people like yourselves. And I'm hopeful, more so than I've been in the past 30 years, that something might come out of this. It'll be a long struggle, um, but something might come out of this. I appreciate that. And earlier uh, you mentioned how there's uh, like a kind of younger folks kind of uh, pushing back now. And um, in February, you wrote an article in The Hindu uh, titled Scripting an Audacity of Hope, the Sanders Way. And in it, you map out the phenomenon, the phenomenal growth in inequality today uh, beyond the rich just getting richer. And I appreciated how you pointed out that the poor have gotten poorer. And the stagnation of wages uh, is one example and health declines and people being overworked and grinded down in their jobs. And in February, um, many of us had this optimism because Bernie Sanders was not gone yet, I think. Um, and I see that in your piece, too, with writing what is unfolding is something akin to a rebellion against the order. And Mr. Sanders is at its helm. And on April 8th, Bernie dropped out. On May 25th, um, George Floyd was murdered. And there's been these uprisings in response to, honestly, the, the conditions of uh, working people, in my opinion. And there's been an argument made over the last few months by some um, that now we're like so many months out and there isn't tangibly much that has materialized from this. Um, however, maybe there's some words that we like on the left that are now part of mainstream lexicon. So it's exciting for me to see sure abolition is in the New York Times and defunding is mainstream. But like, what does it actually mean now? And um, witnessing I've witnessed that with the use of land acknowledgments, too, in Canada. Like it's so mainstream. But like, what does that actually materially mean? And so I guess I would want to get your take on. Where, like, where can we channel the hope that we had, but also what do you think about this mutation of maybe left language, but it's not actually resulting in much, or it doesn't feel like it's resulting in much? Uh, okay, uh, let me try to separate out the, the various yeah. strands uh, that you raised in that, because they're all very important. Um, to start with the observation that it, the uprisings haven't led to much, that's absolutely true. Mm, and it's not entirely surprising. There are a couple of reasons why they haven't led to much. Uh, one reason is that uprising in and of themselves don't lead to change. They only lead to change when they 
uh, impose real costs on ruling classes, on people who have power. Without that, they're theater. Um, what these, the George Floyd mobilizations did was they increased public awareness of police brutality massively, and they accelerated a cultural change that's been going on for quite a while now, where in the United States, there is a now much more awareness of the importance of racial oppression, its ubiquity, and on the, uh, the unacceptability of um, prejudice and racist attitudes in the public domain. That, that's been going on, obviously, since the civil rights movement, and it's been deepening. And the, these uprisings, I think, accelerated that. But it's been confined mainly to uh, public opinion and the cultural realm. If you want to affect change in actual policy and in the distribution of wealth and income, it's going to have to go far beyond these urban uprisings. Because these urban uprisings were mostly simply uh, people showing up, making a lot of noise, and then going home. What ruling classes can do when that happens, they can just wait it out. They can just bunker down in their fortresses, in their homes, and wait for it to dissipate. Secondly, this movement was with lightning speed taken over by elites in the middle class. And here I mean black and brown middle class. The fundamental issue in the United States right now is race is looked at in, in a kind of, with a kind of a tribal mentality, which is that you can acknowledge that class differences exist within non-blacks, within whites, but the black population and the brown population is still seen as essentially homogenous. This is partly because of the paternalism and the soft racism of whites, where they refuse to see distinctions amongst people of color, but it's a very assiduous campaign waged by black elites in the United States to be the spokespeople for the entire black population. That part of the elite, and you can see it represented best in the New York Times right now, that part of the elite insists on taking spontaneous demands which deal with economic and social issues and translating them simply into issues of diversity and representation. That happened with lightning speed. The Democratic Party is very happy with it. The corporate sector is ecstatic that racism is reduced to diversity issues. And black and brown intellectuals are paid to um, push this view. And that's why within minutes, uh, a call to end racial oppression became a call to diversify the elites. That's where we are now. That's where it's going to stay. The only way that changes is if you have a movement of poor blacks, poor Latinos going out and making these demands, not just in the streets, but in workplaces. That's just not on the agenda right now. There's nobody, there's no organized force pushing for that. And within the progressive and the left intelligentsia, the soft paternalism, the soft racism towards black and brown people is one that they're very happy looking at them as a homogenous blob whose only concern is diversity and not redistribution. So that explains your first question. The second question is, um, I think you said, is there any way to translate these demands into actual substantive changes? And so that, the answer to that would be more, basically what I just said at the end of the answer to the first question, which is it happens when you get a working class movement. And uh, this is something the American left needs to <laughs> understand. A working class movement in the U.S. will be multicultural because that's what the working class is. But the radical left has worked very hard the last 40 years, aided and abetted by intellectuals of color to insist that class is a white concept. So you've got a, a radical culture that's lined up against class politics. And anytime you mention class, they think it's white. As long as that happens, it's going to be a huge barrier 
intellectually and culturally to any kind of class politics. And until you get class politics, you will not get anti-oppression politics. It's as simple as that. Thank you so much. I'm done. Thank you. Um, and that kind of leads into this other question uh, I had for you. I'm just looking on my document where it is. But it it is actually, uh, like, it dovetails well. I, I with... Um, yeah, well, like, how has this happened where people think class politics is white? And I think in my generation, um, when I started grad school in 2015, I, I, like, just was told I shouldn't like Marx. Um, and that's probably from my training, um, the, the training I had in undergrad. And I, I'm sad about that. Um, and I'm happy that I did have a Marxist professor who was uh, South Asian as well and, like, she kind of shook me and was like, why, why are you doing that? Like, and the conversation happens so often where it's like, Marx was a white man. Marx said this, Marx said this. And um, my like coming into class politics was super, like super needed. But also it's something I get sad about sometimes when people tell me like, oh, why would you be a Marxist? Or oh, like Marxists are very white. They're all white bros from the DSA. And I guess, how do you think um, maybe academia has served as a conduit for this, but also some organizing um, with, I think, like people who go who are college educated. Um, it's both. It's both. Um, the, the base academia never determines anything. Academia is buffeted by the winds of political change. It, 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 it concretizes and, and systematizes what's in the ether. But what's put into the ether is not done by academia itself. So you have to take a step back and ask, where did this change come from? And you have to appreciate the enormity of the change whereby Marx was deemed to be simply another white European mm -hmm. um, part of the imperial project. These savants, these geniuses who go around saying this, um, they have to contend with the basic fact, which, for the, which is for, since about 1900 to 1980, most of the Marxists in the world were non-white. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's just an embarrassing fact for these people. Uh, most of the movements inspired by Marxism occurred in the global South. And numerically, most of the people struggling around issues of autonomy, independence, economic rights were all people of color. And all it was all done through a socialist rhetoric and a Marxist framework. So if Marx was just a white guy, uh, pretty surprising that all these dumb black and brown people followed him. It's pretty astonishing that it took until 1980 and people read Spivak and Bartho Chatterjee that they realized, oh shit, uh, it's time to go back and read Heidegger because Heidegger must have been black. It's quite mm -hmm. astonishing that this, so how does this occur? Well, it's not that, it's not much of a mystery. It occurs because the forces in the global South, in the United States, that generated a generation after generation of black and brown Marxists, those social forces were defeated. Uh, the, for 80 years, the working class movement and peasant movements all over the world uh, saw that Marxist theory was the theory that best helped them understand their condition in the global economy and in the national economies. And they saw that a theory doesn't have a skin color. Theories mm -hmm. are either right or wrong, wherever they emerge from. This theory happened to emerge in the West, but, you know, so did Newtonian physics. I suppose you could say that's also a white theory and you should reject that as well until some black person comes in, uh, there's their own version of it. Theories are either right or they're wrong. And what people of color saw in the 20th century was that this theory made the most sense to explain their condition. Well, as long as there were movements in the global south of workers and peasants that upheld the banner of Marxism, 
the intelligentsia, however much it hated the idea, had to acknowledge it. And by the intelligentsia, I mean not just white, but also black and brown intelligentsia. By 1980, those movements were dead or dying. And what you had then was a situation for the first time in over a century where there was no social force advocating for the importance of Marxist ideas in the intellectual world, within the academy, amongst intelligentsia, among intellectuals, within the intelligentsia. They were left to, their, to themselves. Once the intelligentsia is left to itself, well, it, sooner or later is going to come down to its career ambitions and what it needs to do in academia. And it, you don't make it in academia if you're a Marxist. All the, everything's lined up against you. Now, on top of that, at that conjuncture, since the, after the 90s, etc., the Indian and Pakistani, the South Asian intellectuals coming to the United States, there was a huge opening to advance your careers if you could do two things. You could um, uh, criticize Marxism as being colonial, oppressive, white, imperialist, etc., whatever you needed to do, and um, build on whatever local knowledge, local expertise you had on your parts of the country. And the, way, the best way to do that was to say that not only is Marx white, but he can't understand the East because he's white, and I, because I originated in that part of the world, have access to knowledge which no white person could, and especially Marx, because he was white. So you had this South Asian studies, Middle East studies, all these fields now staffed with English-speaking, brown-skinned people who've never been to a village in their entire lives, who only come into contact with the poor when they come into their homes as servants, now being the spokespeople for the global South. Um, all their instinctive class hatred, all of their... Um, uh, their um, caprice towards movements of the poor comes out as their, as their hostility to Marxism. And the American academic establishment loves this because anything to set aside Marxist ideas will be supported by them. So you get a, very, you get a marriage of convenience mm -hmm. between upwardly mobile immigrants who have moved to the U.S. for their career ambitions and American academia who likes to have what we, in India we used to call native informants. Uh, local people claiming expertise who are performing a very good function for themselves. And this new, you know, student left, grad student left is a very happy participant in this orgy of um, reaction. Thank you. Um, Basim, do you want to have a question next? Not really. Uh, native informants is a great topic, though. Um, as well as the shift against Marxism and, and the way that self-interested uh, intellectuals or, or other people might have been like coaxed into um, taking a sh stand against Marxism. This happened in what, the, the 80s you were saying, the 1980s? Um, like, what was the, what's the timeline for that? Yeah, this really starts in the 80s. Uh, the, the, yeah. the, the turning point is the publication of Edward Said's book, um, Orientalism. Orientalism yeah. And Said gave the intellectual ballast to this movement it was the first time, first time, since the early 20th century that people from the global south claiming to be radical made it their business to attack Marxism. Said was the one who started this. Um, and while the book has many virtues, it's a profoundly flawed book. I've written an article on this mm -hmm. that was published a year ago in a collection on Said edited by Bashir Abu Mane, and we're going to republish it in Catalyst in the next issue. Um, that was the book that gave it the intellectual ballast. But again, books don't change things. 
it just came around at a time when immigrant intellectuals were looking for a reason to turn away from Marxism to establish themselves in the academy. And it was embarrassing because within the intellectual tradition of the global south, Marx was always seen as a friend to anti-colonialism, as a friend to anti-imperialism. It was embarrassing to be anti-Marxist and still claim to be on the side of the global south. Said provided the means to do it by saying, no, Marx actually is just another white dude. And that starts an intellectual impulse, but that intellectual impulse really only took hold because of the antecedent social and cultural changes that had occurred with the destruction of the left, the taming of the anti-colonial movements, and the emergence of local ruling classes in the South, which won out. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it's just fun and easy in this kind of political climate, and I'm guilty of it when I was an undergrad, to, to hear, like, oh, this, this text will change, like, how you view yourself in relation to um, the West, but also it erases or papers over like the kind of dynamics that exist between people of color in. Um, Look, anybody whatever. who's spent even 10 minutes studying the history of post-colonial South Asia mm-hmm. should run out of the room laughing when they hear that the basic problem in the world is race. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, the Pakistani landlords, the 12 families that run Pakistan, <laughs> Pakistan. would be very happy to hear that yeah. since they're brown, they're absolved of all responsibility. The Indian BJP would, lo- you know, the Indian BJP says human rights are a Western concept. Yeah. Hey, they must have been reading post-colonial studies. Yeah. And hey, I, this and is I, laughable. And I guess, I guess, you're telling me that Nigeria, Zim, that colonial, post-colonial Kenya, that this, the, the reason they're in their situation is because of race. This is ridiculous. Yeah. It just shows I, the depths to which the left has fallen. Exactly. And I, I guess, like, how, how has this literature served as, like, a conduit for people to accept, like, the East versus West as a fulcrum of global conflict instead of reckoning right. with the actual issues? Well, look, when you say people, you're just talking about graduate students you're right. and professors. You, you're you know? right. You should oper- the- I should operationalize it. I should operationalize <laughs> yeah. it more. All right. I mean, that's not, not irrelevant. It's not trivial because I used to think that when the left got going again, all of this this stuff, this post-colonial studies and this critical race theory and all this stuff would just disappear. And it was a big mistake. You know, the mistake was that one thought that when the left gets going, it will be through working class movements and black working, black and Latino working class. There's no Indian working class. It's very tiny in the U.S. Indians Mm -hmm. are the richest ethnicity in the U.S. (laughs) So it's the the idea that Indians are oppressed in the U.S. is is absurd. there's more, but yeah, South Asian is a different matter from yeah. Indian. Uh, but um, the richest ethnicity in the U.S. is Indian and the second richest is uh, Taiwanese. So <laughs> um, the two gr- richest groups in the, U- in the U.S. are brown and whatever you want to call the Chinese, brown or yellow or whatever. Yeah, yeah, they're the richest. Um, and then the Japanese are in the top four. So, you know, non-whites are doing okay if you look at the right non-whites mm-hmm. <laughs> within the United States. Um, so I used to think this would all just disappear. But the mistake was this, that um, every movement re- has an intellectual arm, an intellectual element. And right now, we're in this odd situation where there is a glimmering of a movement against neoliberalism, but it's not yet reached any kind of organized expression amongst the poor. So the where all the action is occurring is in the college educated and the 
upper echelons of the high school educated population. And they all read this garbage. Mm -hmm. They all read it. You're right. And they all come into the room. The first thing they want to talk about is, you know, sexual identity, uh, race, uh, pronouns, all this sort of stuff. And uh, bread and butter issues, they have no concern to them because they don't face bread and butter issues in their lives. So these theories still have a lot of traction because what's called the left is overwhelmingly housed in the top 20 percent of the population. This is true in Canada and it's true in the U.S. So they're not going to go away, go away anytime soon. And I expect people of color especially to play a very backward role in all of this. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just a, it, you see so much stuff trickle down into common, just regular social interactions. Like I'll just have um, just people talking to me about their theories of epigenetics and how like their like ancestors' traumas inside their DNA. I'll just have like random people <laughs> yeah, who have, like yeah. don't really understand like any of the things they're talking about really. Like they don't understand like, but they're just people yeah. are so sure that like within themselves. I mean, this is the like, they've culture individualized. They've individualized. Yeah, exactly. 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 Like all of my ancestor struggles are actually in my genes, like yeah. charging me right now uh, with righteousness or whatever they're. Yeah, I mean, it's a level of stupidity that is almost impossible to believe. So none of this is surprising. And the, the student left, the only reason the student left historically ever came to Marxism was because there was a culture in these countries like India, like Pakistan, although the left was crushed in Pakistan very, mm -hmm. very early. But still, there was a left. The, the political culture was generated by the left. And it's important to understand this. With the death of the left also dies political culture. And the reason for that is this. When capital and when the ruling classes rule the roost, they will never, ever take up and sponsor political debates because it's not in their interest to do so. So they deflect all matters in pu public discussion towards trivial ends, towards ma matters that don't touch their interest at all. The only reason across the 20th century, students, intellectuals were schooled in how to talk about politics was because socialist and communist movements forced it onto the public agenda. With those movements gone, what you're seeing here when you talk about these people talking about how, how their ancestors' memories are in their genes, I mean, this is really racist shit that they're doing, okay? Yeah. When you see this, or that, you know, that black people, we live with our ancestors and we feel this is because we don't have the same conception of time and all this. So you should expect to see all this because this is what a thoroughly bourgeois culture produces. Middle-class people, the narcissism of the class, its ambitions, it's every little hiccup being expressed as a trauma, every little inconvenience being an expression of oppression, all of this stuff. It's an expression of the narcissism of the class. It is never going to go away. It's the natural inclination of this stratum within society. For 80 years, socialists civilized middle-class culture. Now with the death of socialism, what you're seeing is the true nature of middle-class culture. A challenge that uh, the DSA has is how to move out of their current demographic base, right? Um, yeah. And, and how do you think that's tenable? And how do you think that would even work? It's not going to happen on its own. And this is, it, it's, a, it's a real dilemma for the DSA. You cannot blame the DSA mm -hmm. for being preponderantly middle-class at this moment because the DSA started out as a self-styled socialist organization. And in the milieu that it came out of in the early 2000s, self-styled socialists were only found in a professional setting, in college campuses, 
or in urban areas where the middle class, educated middle class lives. It was natural that when, as in the Bernie moment, as it grew and Bernie brought the word socialism into the culture, it would be educated people who came to it. It's not surprising. The dilemma now is how do you get out of that setting? Because in that setting, it, it, it will die. There's, there's no way around that. It will die because after a point, socialism itself will just turn out to be a word that they're using because it has no connection in their own lives. We're talking about people who have, are doing pretty well for themselves. Um, and it'll die because within that milieu, it'll be other issues that really motivate the membership, not class issues, because their class concerns are not that pressing. Mm -hmm. How do you get out of it, Nashua, is the question. And, and I don't think that happens through osmosis or through drift. It will only happen if the organization makes a decision to base itself physically in working class cities, in working class neighborhoods. And that will require a programmatic decision by the national committee to say, let's spend $10 million in buying up some offices in Philadelphia, in Atlanta, in Oakland, in Newark, and hiring organizers like the Communist Party used to do in the 30s, and fanning out into workplaces and into working class neighborhoods and recruiting there instead of recruiting online or recruiting in cafes or recruiting in, you know, uh, that's what it's going to take. I, I, I'm not optimistic that that's going to happen. It, that's, it's, you know, organizational cultures are very hard to change. And yeah. this organization has spent 50 years in a very different setting. It's, you know, it's comfortable with it. I, I appreciate that. And um, you mentioned this earlier, and I think it's a thread from this, is that the United States has never had, um, I guess, a, a mass labor party or socialist party. There's never been like a sizable, serious socialist movement or communist party. And there might not be a satisfying answer to this question, but I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about how American corporations and capitalists have fought off labor movements. Um, the 1950s United States uh, anti was so anti-communist. And so the people who led strikes in the 30s and 40s were kicked out because of McCarthyism. And so... Um, yeah, like, like, is there any hope with this, like, renewed kind of these micro uprisings and and everything going on for for any type of serious labor movement? If the if the DSA can't reprioritize, but can can unions give us that? Some unions have been bought off too. Well, there's always hope. Hope <laughs> springs eternal. I, I was hopeful even when there was no rational reason to be hopeful <laughs> twenty years ago. Uh, so there's always hope. Um, the, the main reason for hope is that the structural, the, the, the crushing poverty and the, the, the amazing inequalities in American society now are so apparent, they're so pervasive, that they're impossible to ignore. And you, the hollowness of identity politics is just becoming so much clearer to people. The, the way in which this, what was a urban uprising of the poor around, around Floyd Patterson was um, co-opted and taken over by these grifters within the black intelligentsia. The way it happened so quickly, I think now should be so obvious. It should, I think, help stoke the divisions, even within communities of color, where uh, the black and the Latino intelligentsia and politicos become uh, discredited. And that's a, that'll be a step forward. I think when Biden wins, it'll help, because there's Kamala Harris, you know. Yeah. Um, and there she is. She's going to be the... Yeah you know, the uh, drone organizer-in-chief, and maybe people will 
see that uh, this isn't exactly an advance for women of color having her up there. So uh, the, the political moment is one where all the political forces in society admit that poverty and inequality is a real issue. And we have seen some glimmerings of labor um, resistance in the past three years, more so than in the past 20 years combined, actually, the strike activity. So there's something. Okay. But look, uh, that's, it's just hope. Right now, rationally, when we look out there, um, the state of the left is right now, look, here's the state of the left. You have to have arguments inside left organizations about whether they should prioritize class organizing. That's the state of the left. Yeah. This is like being a, going to a conference of biologists and wanting to have a debate on whether creationism or evolutionary biology should be our guiding theory. Mm -hmm. That's where we are right now. So um, it's, the left is intellectually and politically the weakest it's been since the day of its birth. And that's, there's a long journey back to relevance and to sanity. We've actually, I think we started that journey. The Sanders moment was indispensable towards that. It's, an, it's been an accelerant, uh, but that's over now. Sanders is gone. He's not going to come back. And uh, making it through the next three years is going to be difficult, uh, important. And we'll have to fight that fight to keep the interests of the poor at the forefront rather than the interests and the fantasies and the frustrations of, of the professional class. But that's where it'll have to be. Thank you. And I guess um, we have to push back against letting people translate things into diversity issues uh, so often. Um, but I guess with, with the... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, thank you, Neshwa. Um, I just wanted to underline how thoroughly stigmatized Sanders was uh, for appealing to white people without college degrees. Um, I just thought that it revealed so much classism and it just became like a running joke that was that, 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 that I guess, uh, uh, you know, the elite classes ran with. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of ugliness in the reaction to Sanders because the intelligentsia was in a panic. Uh, how do you deal with this guy when... When you before up until Super Tuesday, what you saw was Sanders was the most popular presidential candidate amongst people of color, more than the black candidates who were running. Yeah, and this was just an acute embarrassment for two generations of intellectuals who had said that well, black people don't care about food and water. <laughs> yeah. So when they flocked to him, it was a it was a big embarrassment, and you know. Priority number one inside the Democratic Party in 2019 and also 2020 was not beating Trump. They can live with Trump. The priority was to beat back Sanders. So they've won that battle. Whether they win the war, that's a different issue. We'll see. I, I guess um, I'd be like curious to hear, and we've heard a bit about it, uh, about your thoughts on like the failure of electoralism to produce viable ways forward, um, a real help for working people. And yeah, that's that's something that kind of has been not haunting me. I didn't really believe electoral in electoral politics after Obama, really. And I grew up a bit. But um, yeah, this this is just like it feels like kind of being stuck sometimes, especially like seeing certain people come out about voting. Um, electoralism by itself is is not going to be very effective. I'm, I say by itself for the following reason. Um, However constrained it is, in this day and age, abandoning and eschewing the electoral arena altogether is also not possible. Because the culture is so depoliticized that 
the only way to reach people beyond tiny little slivers in your own activist milieu is through the mass campaigns that we see in elections. It's the only time in the United States when people really pay attention to politics is during election time. And so for the left that needs to propagandize and to get its message out and to attract people to its program, elections provide an indispensable springboard to be able to do that. So having a presence in the electoral arena is very, very important right now because we have nothing else. There are no left organizations on the ground. There is no mass base. There are no trade unions. There's no socialist party. We're having to build a base. And you, at that moment, access to people's attention becomes very important because there's no other means to get that access. So elections become an important mechanism towards that. The Sanders campaign showed that in a way that I think now makes it irrefutable. Overnight, words like socialism, single payer, you, you guys are in Canada, you, can, you take it for granted. In the United <laughs> States, public opinion has been in favor of a Canadian-style healthcare system for 40 years. It never even was brought up in presidential debates. It was never even brought up. And so while everybody wanted single payer, nobody knew that everyone else wants it either. Everyone thought that, oh, I'm mm -hmm. the only person who wants this. What Sanders did was he created a, a sense of common endeavor and common interests where in the 40 years prior to that, it had been destroyed. Now that's a huge boon to the left because what, what the left needs is a sense amongst working people, not only that their concerns have some chance of being recognized, but also that their concerns are common concerns, are universal concerns, that others also share in those concerns. So the left can't abandon that, it can't relinquish and altogether set aside that particular instrument if it wants to grow more powerful. But if you confine yourself to the electoral arena, you're going to lose. And the reason for that is, even if you win elections, and it's very hard to win elections when you're up against the power of money, but even if you win elections, once you get into office, the structural pressure is on you to prioritize the interests of the rich and to deprioritize the interests of your own constituency. Those structural pressures are overwhelming. The only way you can overcome them is if your constituency has some strength on the ground, if it's mobilized, if it's organized, if it can put a countervailing pressure on the candidate, a countervailing pressure to the pressure of capital. So in addition to the electoralism, you have to have grassroots organizations, working people's organizations. And without those, it's very hard to succeed. Obama's not a good example. Obama never had any intention of being a progressive. Mm -hmm. He told her, I mean, people, people didn't listen because he was black. So they kind of foisted all their fantasies onto him. Obama was pretty clear from the start that he was going to be a center and center-left Democrat, which by normal standards means a right-wing European politician. So that was never on the cards, but it did for young people like yourself, at least, who hadn't yet appreciated the full pressure that these uh, politicians are under. It was kind of, a, I hope, a wake-up moment. And for the left going forward, it's a big step that they have now realized the importance of the electoral arena. The next step is now to realize that the electoral arena by itself is a morass. You will lose if you confine yourself to it. Thank you. I appreciate that nuance. Um, I, I know you're not like on Twitter and I hate thinking about Twitter too much, but it's been an interesting uh, week of people saying like, is voting for Biden harm reduction or not? And 
um, thinking about electoral politics and how it's one element, I guess I'd like to pose the question to you about what you think about not necessarily harm reduction and using that language, but um, people right now voting like is vote is being a progressive or a leftist. Should we be voting for Biden? The DSA put out a statement that was kind of interesting as well in the last two weeks about it. My attitude towards voting is this. I, I think um, most in the United States, most working people don't vote. And um, I don't blame them. Yeah. The system is rigged against them. Yeah. And to wag your finger at them the way the Democrats do and their enablers and tell them that shame on you, if Trump wins, it's your fault, I, I think that's repellent. My view is if you are going to vote, if you're going to vote, and yeah, I, I, I would say vote Biden, simply because I think the what Trump now is is not just a garden variety Republican. He's an altogether different kettle of fish. He's not it's not fascism or anything. That's not on the cards. But what Trump is doing is it it's it re represents a special kind of neoliberalism. One where the the most extreme forms of um bourgeois politics are married to a narcissistic personality and the mind of a child. And what he's done to the American state is unprecedented. So I, I think there's no question that there's a big difference between Biden's kind of neoliberalism and imperialism and Trump's neoliberalism and imperialism. Um, that said, voting is not politics. And all of this debate on the left around who should you vote for is just misplaced. Of course, if you think Biden does less harm how on earth would you justify not voting for him if you're going to vote? How, it's just illogical to say he does less harm, but I'm not going to vote for him. Mm -hmm. But you shouldn't organize for him. Yeah. You shouldn't do any work for him. What you do is you, you flip the lever. Yeah, you, I'll give him my vote. And then you go out and organize against him. Yeah. <laughs> by organizing for single payer, by organizing against imperialism, by organizing for some kind of the Green New Deal and things like that. But... It makes no sense to say that, to acknowledge that he's less harmful than to say, I'm not voting for him. What you need to do is step away from your conception of voting as the essence of politics. It's just one element in politics. It's a political culture in which elections are seen to be the embodiment of, of political engagement. And what the left needs to do is to say to, show, say to people, um, the Political change doesn't come out of your vote. Political, meaningful political change comes out of building social power. But the, the vote isn't a trivial act. It will be, to my, I mean, the main reason I want Biden to win is not because he's going to do a lot of good. Obviously, he's not. The main reason is that the, the, the insanity <laughs> that the Trump presidency has unleashed upon the culture can now be mitigated somewhat. The obsession with getting Trump out can finally be put behind us. And we can start dealing with what the American ruling class as a whole has up its sleeve. Right now, the candidate of the American ruling class is Biden. The political establishment wants Trump gone. American capital wants Trump gone. Most of the electorate wants Trump gone. When Biden is in, now you can focus on the wider class agenda of neoliberalism and not this peculiarity that the Trump presidency was. And secondly, frankly, Biden's presidency is going to do a lot for us to get beyond identity politics, because he's going to very carefully place people of color in his cabinet 
And it's going to help us show that color is not politics. Politics is programmed. And elites within the black and the Latino population are just as happy to eat at the trough of neoliberalism as white elites are. And the answer lies in class organizing, not in this, <laughs> this obsession with diversifying the American establishment. Um, I guess like in, in 2016, we witnessed um, kind of the way Hillary Clinton manipulated the language of intersectionality, which is kind of related to what we're discussing right now. And um, specifically how the Democratic Party wields that form of identity politics to kind of push citizens against self-interest. And right now we're witnessing it, I would argue, in a more intensified form in many moments. So we had Biden overtly say, well, I tell you what, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're voting for me or Trump, then you ain't black, which was like a moment that was like, it was mind blowing for me. But I was like, no, 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 it shouldn't be mind blowing. They've been building up to this point. Um, they have been building up to this point. And Hillary Clinton's kind of uh, campaign popularized what I would argue is maybe the beginning of a mainstream radical left wing language being used, but incorrectly. And and as much as like AOC, it's mixed. She's young, blah, blah, blah. All the things people yell at me about. She does it, too. Sometimes AOC sometimes evokes language um, that makes people feel good, makes people think she's like woke and and with it and decolonial. She's I love saying decolonize and indigenous sovereignty, as she has said. And then she does these things that make me kind of look back. And in Canada, we have Jagmeet Singh, who loves to TikTok and loves to be saying like defund the police, indigenous sovereignty, but then he will take a selfie and support the member of parliaments who are building pipelines um, out west. And so I would love to hear from you how we can push back against this traveling of language that ends up being so self-soothing for some, um, and in my opinion, sets leftists back and we're not getting leftist gains um, when liberals kind of take this language and do this and leftists kind of get enamored with it for a second. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, Neshwa. I think the Hillary Clinton's campaign was a turning point okay, in the Democratic Party seeing that the way forward for it was to bring in the college-educated crowd with this language of intersectionality and identity and marginality and all this stuff um, and uh, shutting out the more class-based demands that were being put on it. Um, it's not surprising. Look, this is something that is happening across the capitalist world. Left-wing social democratic parties are now overwhelmingly parties of the college-educated and the post-secondary-educated populations. So their base is a base that has no interest in class politics because it's in the top 20% of the population, the top 30% of the population, but it is very enamored of uh, the language of identity. Why? Because for the whites within that base, it gives them a sense of being morally enlightened. Uh, and for the college-educated people of color, uh, it allows them to express their frustrations. What's the frustration of an upwardly mobile black person or an Indian or a Latino? It's um, inclusion and discrimination. This is what they face in their everyday experiences. If you watch movies made by Indian directors, what is the most important concern of Indians on, in the world? It's, um, am I sexually attracted, attracted to white people? White people, yeah. You would think this is all Indians care about. Arranged marriages, finding a white spouse, and then obsessing over having a white spouse. Yeah. This, this is the... 
So that's the moral universe you're, you're dealing with, right? And in that moral universe, using this language, I mean, even you, Nashwa, look what you just said, the way you posed it. You said, using this language to get citizens to vote against their interests. I mean, the upwardly mobile blacks are not voting against their interests. Oh, you're right, you're right, yeah. You've got to get rid of this language of citizens and communities, and mm. it's class versus class, mm. in which oppression and racial discrimination are present. But you've got to, the way you move beyond it is to recognize there's no such thing as communities of color. There's rich black people and poor black people. They share a small sliver of common experiences, like discrimination, like feeling marginal. And that's what gives upwardly mobile blacks some credibility with working class blacks. Because when they invoke that experience, working class blacks can relate to it. Mm-hmm. But the essence of that politics is they restrict race to just that component of racial oppression, the discrimination and the feeling of marginality. The way to p- push beyond it is to say, if you're really going to fight racism and racial oppression, look at what the, just look at the opinion polls. What do non-college educated blacks say is their number one concern in the United States. We have the data. It's jobs. It's healthcare. It's, a, it's literally Bernie Sanders' program. Yeah. The way you push beyond it is to stop using this, this ridiculous language that we use to talk about race. We have to talk not about racial discrimination, but racial oppression. And we have to understand racial oppression doesn't reside in language and symbols. It resides in the maldistribution of opportunities. And that maldistribution of opportunities is not going to be changed without a redistribution of income and wealth. And that's not going to come except through black and brown people, working class people, pressing their demands as working class people. Now, how do you get there? I mean, that's simple. You organize them. But for that, we have a template. It's 100 years old. You organize them. You don't spend your time on Twitter. Yeah, log off. I need to take that advice more seriously. <laughs> Stay tuned for part two available on our Patreon at patreon.com slash rumspringer.